This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Welcome to our podcast. What the hell is going on? Mark, what the hell is going on now? Well, what the hell is going on is we've averted a government shutdown for roughly 47 days and we're under a continuing resolution, which means we're spending at previous levels on the government. And that means, as usual, the Defense Department is getting screwed. And not just not the Defense Department, because many people will look at that and say, well, so what? You know, government bureaucracy, big money, they have tons of money, they're okay. No, the American people are getting screwed because the Constitution, the number one job of the federal government is provide for the common defense. That is what we do. And in Washington, everything else is, you know, unless it's an enumerated power in the Constitution, is optional. Providing for the common defense is everything. It is the, the peace and stability around the world that the Defense Department provides is what allows us to live our lives uh, unmolested by foreign powers, uh, allows us to go about our daily existence trying to deal with Joe Biden's inflation and the crime wave and everything else that we have, the problems we have here. If you add a foreign war on top of that or a country attacking us, we're, we're done. And so we need a Defense Department that's going to deter those adversaries so that we can live our lives here and the defense department is not just is not just behind the curve we are behind china the chinese uh, communist party is investing like crazy in their military much more so than they say much more than our intelligence community says and we are not keeping up and we are going to be behind them in a big way if we don't get our act together well 100 percent true but i want to put it even more close to home for people you know i want you to think about your budget and your expenses for next year. Okay, you live in a house, your expenses are, you know, whatever they are, 50,000 a year, 25,000 a year. Okay, but you're making a certain amount of money this year. Unfortunately, you are spending more because of incredibly high inflation, but you're but you're not making more. Okay, so you got a 3% raise, but you've got 9% more in costs at the pump, at the supermarket, everything you need. Schools, you got to get your kids through schools, you got to pay for sports. Okay, but your boss comes to you and says, I don't know if I'm keeping you next year. I mean, maybe I am, but you know, maybe I'm not. And I just don't know if I'm going to be able to keep you at your current salary. I mean, maybe I will, but maybe I won't. But on top of that, maybe I'll just freeze up and I'll fire a bunch of people, okay? How do you think about the coming year? Okay, first of all, you go full hair on fire panic. How am I gonna pay for these things? How am I gonna look after my kids? How am I gonna pay for food? How am I gonna pay the gas bill? How am I gonna pay my mortgage? How am I gonna do these things? Am I gonna have to move into my car, right? Am I gonna have to move in with their parents? Now imagine to yourself that the nation's defense looks exactly like that every single year. Congress is the employer, Congress is the check writer, and Congress dicks around every single year. Ooh, we love to give our military boys and girls pay rises. But do we worry about paying for the things that we need to pay for? Modernizing ammunition, competing with China, spending on new threats, and deterring enemies? No, we can't do that because we're too busy focused on what your pronouns are in your freaking email. So two different problems to disaggregate in the example you gave, which was excellent, is number one is your income is going up just slightly. But inflation is going up much higher. And so even though your income might have gone up by 3%, costs are up 9%. And so you have a net pay cut, right? Same thing with the defense budget. Inflation on everything to buy the the steel, the titanium, the gunpowder, everything else, all those prices are through the roof. And Joe Biden and the Republicans in Congress have agreed to increase defense spending by a percentage that is much less than the cost of inflation, which means you've just like you have a net pay cut, they've got a net defense decrease, right, in the in the defense budget. And then on top of that, 
with this whole uh, CR process and the potential of a government shutdown and all the rest of it, they're creating so much uncertainty that the Defense Department can't invest. You don't build an aircraft carrier in a week. You don't build it in six months. It takes five years. And you got to buy stuff now in order to produce it down the line. And if you don't know the funding is going to be there, you're not going to buy it. And it's going to take much longer to build it. So we've got the problem that we're not investing enough in our defense budget to keep up with the costs of inflation. And also, we're doing it in such a back-asswards way. The Defense Department is costing more to produce the stuff that should cost less. And we can't get it in time because we don't have any certainty in the defense budget. And so, by the way, and last point, none of these are problems that the Chinese Communist Party has. They don't have to worry about Congress cutting off their spending or doing anything like that. When Xi Jinping says build an aircraft carrier, they salute and they build the friggin' aircraft carrier. And when he says they come, they steal them. They come, yeah, they, they, steal form, they steal it from us, and then they build it. Exactly. I, I, again, want to put this in, in, even, in even sort of more simple terms, okay? And I want you to understand the role that Congress plays, because Congress plays a very pernicious role here. So you've got, let's just talk about uh, a ship or a submarine or an aircraft, a bomber, a refueling tanker. Okay, so you're making a cake. Okay, you're making a cake for the party and it's your kid and your kid comes in and goes, hey, mom, I knew that I told you only having five friends, but actually I invited my entire class. So we're going to have 80 people here tomorrow. I need you to make more cake. And then your husband comes in and goes, oh, honey. And, you know, or maybe it's your wife who comes in and goes, oh, honey. I hate chocolate frosting. We really need to make some of the cakes with buttercream and some of the cakes with chocolate. And then someone else comes in and goes, oh my God, I've got a lot of gluten-free friends, mom. How could you have made these cakes with flour? They can't eat that. Now, I know that sounds like I'm being simplistic and dumbing shit down. That's exactly what happens day in, day out with the manufacturer of our goods. And by the way, the people who build this stuff are not just your mom in the kitchen with a cake and some flour and sugar and butter and eggs, okay? These are people with extraordinarily specialized talents. They have extraordinarily specialized tools. And if they don't have work for a year, they don't stay around. They close down lines that make aircraft. They close down lines that make submarines. And then you've got to start from scratch. you got to train people up again. Everybody bitches. Ooh, Lockheed Martin's making so much money. Ooh, Boeing is an outrage. Ooh, Northrop Grumman. And my answer is you wouldn't find any company in the world that operated on a normal for-profit basis that would put up with the garbage that the U.S. government puts these people through. Here's some more. Here's some less. Chocolate, buttercream, fly this way, go that way. Update this, don't do that. Use biofuels, make it more green, make it less green, make it more accommodating for women, make it less accommodating, bigger wings, different refueling. This is something that makes manufacturing extraordinarily difficult. And as Mark says, you can bet your bottom dollar. That's not what happens in the People's Republic of China. And here's the, I'll add the icing on the cake to continue to analogy. <laughs> Imagine if the only place you could get flour is from your enemy, from China. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine. So this is something that most people don't know. We are completely dependent on China for energetics for our weapon. The stuff that makes missiles fly, the stuff that makes weapons go boom. We have one gunpowder factory in the United States of America in Louisiana, and it blew up. <laughs> And it blew up. We're it's we like we're not. It's like I mean, it's like it's literally like a cartoon. It's like like you know, Wiley Coyote. Um, you know, we are dependent on them for. I think the Defense Department said we are de- completely dependent on China for twenty-seven chemicals that we need to produce weapons to deter China. And, and you know it, but you, know, you haven't done anything about it. We need to start producing these here at home because we're not doing it. I mean, so we we've got. I mean, the Defense Department, not enough money to keep up with inflation. Micromanagers in Congress who are trying to tell them how to make the weapons, how they, all the rest of it. And, oh, by the way, we got to get all the all the stuff we need to build the weapons to make them go and make them go boom from our enemy. And if we have it at home, they wanted to stop us from being able to fight a war. They just got to blow up one factory in Louisiana or one factory in Colorado and we're done. We, we can no longer fight. And so we have so the risk is there. This is how insane our defense 
industrial base and our process of funding the military is. And guess what? We're screwing them over now because we're on a continuing resolution and the Congress can't do its friggin' job, which is to provide for the common defense. Okay, but Mark, you're not letting me interrupt because it's not just awful Congress. It's not just our defense people who are who are jumping up and down and running around. It's also absolutely fucking insane mandates from the lefties in the federal government. So now everything has to be green. Everything has to be feminist. Everything has to be diversity, equity, and inclusion. Ooh, do you, enough, do you have enough female pilots? Ooh, are you using enough biofuels? What kind of cars are the military using? And guys, I know this sounds like some sort of fringy rant. Uh, electric um, tanks. I'm kidding you not. They want to make our tanks electric. Are you fucking kidding me? When we're in a war and they have to find a charging, st- a Tesla charging station for our tanks because we don't have fuel? Because we because we can't use fossil fuels to fight the enemies of America. Good Lord, it's insane. All right, we're ranting, 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 but we actually have a first-time guest uh, who is one of our really dear colleagues who works on this all the time. And I'm surprised she has any hair left because I would tear my hair out. This is such a frustrating area. And it's an area where there's it's equal opportunity, stupid. There are Democrats and Republicans who are just bad. There's no leadership where we are so needing leadership, not to have a better military for itself, but for our own national security. Mackenzie Eaglin is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. She works on defense strategy, budgets, military readiness. She's one of the most go-to people at AEI for our friends on Capitol Hill. She's on the board of the Alexander Hamilton Society. She is one of the 12-member U.S. Army War College Board of Visitors, and she is a member of the Commission on the Future of the Navy. Here's our interview. So, Mackenzie, first of all, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Pleasure We've to be here. wanted to have you on for so long, and I want to start at the most basic level. Talk to us about the defense budget, how much it is, what it does how it works, because I think that's the baseline that helps lead us into understanding what's going on. Okay. Well, right. So it's just not another mouth to feed at the federal trough. I know it's tempting to think about defense dollars that way, but this is a unique federal agency in so much as the armed forces exist for a purpose, right? To keep threats at bay so that everyone can live their lives in their pursuit of happiness here free from worry. So the reason it's a unique federal agency is because it's, it's the only one that could inflict violence in the name of the state. If that is what politicians say that they is required to keep us safe, and that's what they do. That's what makes it special. It's not that it's a better, you know, it's not that it's better than everybody else, but it's very unique to the federal government. The states can't do this. Local governments can't do this. So when you put the military's budget into context, you know, you could look at it through three crude lenses as a percentage of our economy, what can we afford to spend as a percentage of federal spending and in real terms and real dollars. And in all three, you see this steady decline in what we spend on the military for over a decade now, really. I think it's really important that people understand that our defense budget has not grown commensurate with inflation. So in the continuing resolution that Congress just passed, a CR, all it does is keep the number at a straight line. But if inflation is 9% or 8% and you up the budget or you keep it the same, that's a loss for our defense budget. Then again, there are other issues here, right? What is our job in the military? Our job with the military is not to be good enough to fight wars, Our job in the military is to be good enough to frighten other people not to want to fight wars with us. At the same time, we've got Iran with a nuclear weapon, North Korea with a nuclear weapon. We've got the Russians invading. We've got the Iranians arming the Russians. We've got the Russians in Syria. We've got the Chinese in the Middle East. We've got China all around, not simply in the South China Sea, but in Africa and elsewhere. The threat environment is a disaster, how does this work vis-a-vis our economy, vis-a-vis our spending, and vis-a-vis our environment? That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, and I don't really see an end in sight. So while the defense budget has gone up, the economy has been growing. But really, relative to kind of, if you put it in context, overall, the trends are down. Senate Republicans pushed through two years of defense spending increases significantly above the Biden White House request because of everything that you just said, Danny because of the worldwide threat environment, it's not getting better. 
the wars we don't fight are the cheapest ones. And so, yes, it's it's significantly expensive to deter uh, bad problems, to prevent crises from spiraling into conflicts. But that's exactly why you have this large standing military in what's even an unsteady peace, is to prevent bad, worse things from happening. So the Senate, you know, took the lead and, and all of Congress voted accordingly. But now with House Republicans... That all ground to a halt. And so now you have Biden budgets, which are not keeping pace with inflation. And as we all know in our own pocketbooks, the lost buying power, right? You you're, you have the same number in your bank account, but it buys half of what it used to, you know, the shrinkflation effect as well. So the same trends apply to the military. So living under Biden budgets or worse, House Republican negotiated deal budgets, which are even lower, uh, are going to really the, the military will just get smaller in order. So you mentioned the Biden budget. So we're not spending enough under Biden to meet inflation. So we're having net defense spending decreases. Is that correct? That is correct. And what does that mean for us? I mean, to talk about what China is doing, uh, because obviously I think everyone agrees that our number one threat, notwithstanding all the others that Danny laid out, is uh, is China. China's investing in their defense budget. They're spending on all the things that we're not, hypersonics, their Navy, all the rest of it. Talk about what China is doing and compare it to what the United States is doing. There are two types of consequences, the immediate and then the longer term. And the longer term ones are are equally terrible, where you see ships colliding because sailors literally lack the most basic navigational skills. Uh, but the most immediate consequence is you're not as forward, you're not as globally present, which when you're not there, people make different decisions and choices, good or bad, right? You can't influence their decision-making because they know it's going to take you a while to get there. Readiness takes a hit almost immediately. And we already have an armed forces recovering from, like I said, the reduced readiness of the Budget Control Act. The Air Force, for example, cannot break out of its pilot crisis shortage. No matter what they throw at this problem, it's 2,000 pilots. And, I mean, it's significant. It's been years and the same number, the needle hasn't moved. But then what you see are the second order effects, Mark. Then they stop flying their pilots as much. So the uh, flying hours get reduced, not just virtually, but the most important in the cockpit. China is not reducing their pilot flying hours. And so what it means is you have less proficient, uh, less technical, less capable forces, and then everybody knows it. And so when you start cutting flying hours, the ripple effect appears five years later. So the, for example, the Commission on Military Aviation Safety found that in the Budget Control Act era post-sequester, we lost 224 lives and two, almost 200 aircraft due to increased Class A mishaps. That's what happens when you don't fly. And then finally, the Army. They start cutting readiness, too. Uh, they, they're, they're less uh, engaged with partners and allies to keep these crises that are simmering from becoming problems. But then they start cutting than really necessary bills, like munitions, like ammunition. So again, here, I look backward to give us a sense of what's going to come. The Army cut everything in munitions in the Budget Control Act era to pay the bills. These are like liquid accounts. That's why they always get raided first. And then, of course, the United States runs out of munitions in almost every war we prosecute. But if you look at just 155, which everybody seems to know now, it's like a household munition, for two years during the Budget Control Act era, the Army idled the Scranton plant that builds 155s. Not a single shell came out of that plant. It's a miracle they're still open. These are the kinds of effects of a budget that doesn't rise with inflation. Right. But this is a persistent problem. This isn't a Republican problem. This isn't a Democrat problem. This is a problem in the United States of America that has gone from administration to administration. Right. Well, you're right that this is not unique to one administration. This is multiple secretaries of defense, different parties, different Congresses across the board. I honestly think they lack awareness of their uh, of where the dollars go. And I know that seems shocking that a secretary of defense wouldn't have this basic stuff. But Danny, you've had to listen to me about this for years. So you know, but they come into this job thinking, I have three quarters of a trillion dollars to play with. I can do whatever I want. Lloyd Austin did go to the White House two times, two separate budget years, um, directly to the president, overriding the White House budget office, asking for more money. And he got it. So, you know, to his credit, and others before him had also done this, other secretaries of defense under Trump as well, which should tell you that's one. Okay, so if everybody has to go um, 
you know, solicit the president for more dollars should tell you that we got a spending, you know, there, there are imbalances and systemic problems underneath the defense top line and where the dollars go. Uh, that they're doing this behind the scenes just also signals that they understand that there's something to fix, but they don't have the time because, you know, secretaries have to deal with Congress and allies in the White House. They're, they're just busy. But what it really speaks to, like I said, are, are all of these challenges underneath it, Danny, which is that lack of strategic flexibility. There are really only so many dollars that can get moved around. If you come in and you say, I want to be more China focused. Or I want to be more middle-tier power-focused Iran and North Korea. Or I want to be more ready or more modern. Pick your strategic choice, right, as a secretary. Your commander's intent, your choice. Within the defense budget, you're talking about 10% that you have that's flexible funds that can be moved around. Everything else is on autopilot, and you have to make dramatic changes if you want to, to spend dollars differently. We don't clean sheet the budget and start from a whiteboard every year. You take last year's budget and you try to move things around. But so many things are, are like I said, basically fenced and fixed funds, partly for Congress, for, partly for parochial reasons, but for a variety of you know bureaucratic purposes, the money is largely untouchable, absent major significant changes about our role in the world. And so I don't I think secretaries come in thinking they have more flexibility and funding than they actually have. What I have found over the years is, sadly, if you want to do big things differently with your armed forces, you have to be additive with the dollars. Nobody's willing to take on the political third rails to get, free up more funds underneath the defense budget. They're too lazy or they don't have the time or the interests or the stamina. And therefore, that's why you have to add money. And that's why it's so difficult to make big sweeping changes. Talk to us about China's defense budget. What are they investing in? Where are they pulling ahead of us? And what are the risks? Yes, I just put out a really short report. I mean, you know, eight pages on just 10 ways China is rapidly advancing and ahead of America in national security. And I could have made it, sadly, Mark, a report that's 20 or 30. And, and you know, Washington's a lagging indicator. When Washington figures out we're behind, I can assure you we're much further than we think. I'm trying to highlight here and in terms of hard power and national security capabilities, we're not falling, we have fallen behind because the Joint Chiefs love to say like, oh, well, in a couple years, it'll be really bad. Nope, it's really bad right now. And of course, the first area in which we're falling behind is total military investment. You know, it's time to retire the tired trope that we spend more than the next insert X number of countries combined on defense. Beijing self-reports their numbers. <laughs> That's a joke. It's laughable that we would even take that number seriously. They're obviously, they lack transparency as a regime. But finally, the intelligence community put out an estimate of what they think China's defense budget is, which is almost 4x what Beijing claims. And that number itself is even low. So when Mackenzie sprinkles in her calculations of things like purchasing power parity, lower cost of labor, military civil fusion, Zero research and defense dollars in their military budget, unlike ours, which is a significant part of our defense budget. I can go on and on and on down the list. I'd say their military budget's somewhere between 1.2 and 1.3 trillion, far eclipsing ours. But we just take Beijing's reported, you know, 290 billion as somehow reasonable and truth. And obviously that's not the case. So um, we need more sunshine from the IC. The the America's spy community said that Beijing's budget is probably closer to $700 billion, But like I said, it's, it's easily over a trillion when you factor in additional uh, things. So they're not, you know, they and they don't have to worry about continuing resolutions and government shutdowns. I think it was Jim Mattis who said, you know, no enemy in the field has done more damage to uh, the military than, than basically Congress through continuing resolution, spending freezes, basically. And I think that's right. Give us the top five of your uh, list. Where are they ahead of us? What kind of weapon system do they have that we don't have? What does their Navy look like compared to ours? Well, uh, okay, let's just start with shipbuilding. I mean, they already have the largest Navy and Air Force, rocket force and sub-strategic missile forces in the world. Okay, so just in terms of mass and volume, China's military is significantly outpacing ours. And yes, coincidentally, many of their uh, capabilities look a lot like ours, meaning they were stolen. So, you know, their new aircraft carrier, their J-20 fighter jet, you know, they're, they're, they love to just steal America's stuff and go faster and cheaper. Um, but hypersonic missiles is another area. 
uh, that China, you know, we, we chose 20 years ago to take a pause and then China and Russia said we're going to accelerate on hypersonic weapons. And Tell our listeners what a hypersonic missile is. So basically, these are weapons that fly at a speed faster than anything in our current arsenal. So what it means is your missile can outrace your air defenses through their next generation speed and maneuverability. They're significantly threatening to the homeland in particular. They're, some people call them glide vehicles, which makes them also capable of carrying nuclear weapons. And so they have not just conventional implications, but strategic weapons as well. And they're pretty terrifying. And when we stepped back from hypersonics, China and Russia accelerated their development. And now we realize we have a problem where they can outrun our best equipment that's not a missile. Uh, okay. So you already know, but thanks to the pandemic and chips and other sort of headlines that we're also falling behind Beijing when it comes to minerals and rare earths. You know, China is, loves to weaponize supply chains, but we rely on critical minerals and their processing capacity for almost every single weapon system in the United States. Air and missile defense and integrated air defense, space domain. I can keep going, but you're getting a sense here of all the areas that they are not catching up, but have surpassed America. You know, air defenses are, you know, we've seen this if you've ever been to Israel, right? You, you understand the importance of air defense, keeping things that enemies want to have land on your head from ever coming, coming in to, to threaten you. And air, you know, we don't really, our troops don't operate without air defense and air superiority. But, you know, these are just, you know, Starlink, space domain. We've seen, you know, what happens in Ukraine when there is the absence of the ability to link up to space with targeting, with maneuver, with movement, with safety. I could keep going, but you're getting the, the sense here, I hope, that how insecure our forces are now. I, I just keep coming back to the same question, though. Why? I mean, it, it only takes three minutes to talk to anyone who has to deal with these numbers every day to, un- to understand why they're all misinformed. Well, what they see what they want to see. It's worse than that on the left, Danny. I mean, there's, there is so much spending that is entitlements that's not related to the core function of the armed forces in the defense budget. And that's, that's basically on purpose. Okay. So I just, Anthony Brown was a Democrat from Maryland, terrific member of Congress. We worked with him at AEI actually, but he put out an op-ed. I'm just going to quickly make this point a couple years ago, um, trying to convince his colleagues to pass the defense bill, you know, the money for the armed forces. And in it, he said the dirty secret which you're not supposed to do on the left. He said, we spend $1 billion more on Medicare and the defense budget than new tactical vehicles. He talked about how we spend more on defense health care than we do on new ships. He said, there's $200 billion in the defense budget that's for non-defense purposes. So, the, you know, there, there's been a concerted multi-decade effort to lard up the butter in the budget for guns. Everyone's in on the fix, both parties. That's part of the problem. And then the other one, right, is this misunderstanding that there's all this waste and and, uh, inefficiency. There's no more scrutinized federal agency than the Defense Department and the Armed Forces. Uh, Will there always inherently be some sort of of, of that? Yes. But, you know, it's it's I think everyone takes taxpayer dollars and due diligence very seriously. I've never come across an unprofessional in the Defense Department that doesn't care very deeply about spending other people's money. So everybody's misguided, but none of them actually want to be educated. I think that's my problem. We had Mike Gallagher on the podcast a while back, and he pointed out that we are actually dependent on China for energetics, which is what what makes our rockets go, what makes our weapons fire. Like we're literally dependent on them for the firepower uh, that, that our military has. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I, I am worried about energetics as well. But, right, so you're summarizing kind of, it's a nice term, it's a clean term, but energetics is really the chemicals and other propellants and fuses that help make things blow up. You know, weapons without munitions, without things that blow up, are just paperweights, really, unless you're doing other things with them like spying or intelligence collection, right? But for the most part, you... You want missiles on ships and airplanes to be stuff able that to goes boom, exactly stuff that blows up. So um, across the board, well, one we have a munitions shortfall. 
So the Pentagon head of acquisition said recently that three or four times in the last 20 years, America has run out of munitions to prosecute its wars. You would think after time one, Mark, you would fix the problem, but nope, it just keeps happening. We don't actually fix it. Part of that challenge is what goes in these projectiles, you know, these these missiles, munitions, these mines, these things that blow up, you have to have something inside of it, an energetic. We are not just short on energetics overall. We're reliant on many different foreign countries, some friendly, some not. And we're not doing enough research on next generation energetics. You know, there's a limited supply of certain types of this stuff. Uh, so, for example, um, right now we get all of our, most of our TNT from Poland. It's a very, it's, it's a molecule with a really nasty environmental waste stream. Pretty soon, Poland's going to wake up and say, don't ex- export your environmental garbage to us. And or Putin's going to wake up and say, hey, interesting. If I take out this site in Poland, America can't fire half of its weapons. You know, so we have an energetics problem, a shortfall, lack of diversity, lack of new development and reliance on China. It's something that's going to require multi-year effort. Uh, and it's, the Defense Department leadership's just waking up to it, but nobody's moving fast enough. So, Mackenzie, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, earlier this year in April entitled, The U.S. Military Relies on One Louisiana Factory for Gunpowder. It Blew Up. So, I mean, literally, we had some ramshackle uh, factory in Minden, Louisiana, which has made all of our gunpowder, and it's no longer working. I mean, how do we get to that point? Yeah, no, Mark, there are so many examples like that. I could write 20 more stories just like that. The single points of failure in the infrastructure with which we use to make all of the things that go boom across the United States. You t- and China or Russia targets one of these and we're out of the war for five years. I am not exaggerating. And in fact, someone mentioned in my Army Science Board study where we did a deep half-year look at munitions, the industrial base that builds this stuff, including that factory, what we found was, um, you know, we, we tend to focus on the, the war games like the other think tanks or the RAND Corporation, but basic, you know, but inside the Defense Department, they have their own war games. And what we heard was at the Pentagon in the most, you know, secret rooms, all the war games end immediately because they take out energetics facilities in like Arizona and Tennessee. And then the, the whole thing ends and you have to start over. <laughs> and so this is an extreme vulnerability for America that, that really needs to be addressed. And it kind of gets to Danny's question earlier about military infrastructure. The state of our bases and places from which you launch forces or build anything, including weapons, it's, it's not even World War II era in many cases. It's Civil War era buildings. And report after report finds, you know, uh, you know, Marines who are supposed to fix airplanes, they're told not to have a tow accident because they have to keep moving planes between hangar bay doors that'll actually open. I mean, that that's the state of the infrastructure, but you wouldn't know it from Washington's debates. I look at Congress and I recognize that when it comes to a vote for increasing military paychecks, they're all like, yeah, absolutely. Let's give our boys and girls more money. But when they need to do the hard stuff, which is to fix the defense industrial base, which is to address the cradle to grave healthcare benefits that go to everybody, whether or not they fought in combat, whether or not they sat behind a desk their entire career, all of that kind of welfare that we are engaging in paying in the defense department and in the defense budget, Congress is just AWOL. Yeah, you've hit on some of that. I mean, right. So the single biggest item on the defense department's balance sheet reflects any large organization in America, and it's the cost of labor, the total cost, which, of course, is much bigger than direct salaries, you know, what people see on their pay stub every Friday or whenever they get paid. It is uh, the deferred and in-kind benefits that we provide our armed forces, which are significant. There's a lot of this spending that you're referencing, Danny, that's for retirees inside the defense budget, which... Of course, then we need to have this broader debate about, you know, kind of where the dollars are parked, because I would like our, you know, core military budget to reflect warfighting capability, things that have direct combat relevance, even so, right, so to your point, healthcare does have direct relevance to, um, to winning a war or contested, you know, sustaining a war with mass casualties, 
that's not what the kind of money we're talking about. The healthcare is uh, uh, obstetrics and geriatrics. That's the primary uh, fields of, of work for medicine and domestically here for the military. I would love to, well, one, just sort of have broader awareness that, right, this is most, it's not all F-22s and F-35 Joint Strike Fighters. It's mostly just paying people to do, perform work. That's at least half the defense budget by our calculations, Danny, and you and I have looked at this over this. It's probably closer to 55%. And then the rest, you know, in theory supports that. But what I, I think the future is, you know, a lot of states in America, they have capital and operating budgets. And I think that eventually you're going to have to break out the defense budget to, to, to reflect that, where you have sort of longer-term investment, like it takes five years to build an aircraft carrier, and you have to plan for that ahead of time because you need to buy parts 20 to 36 months in advance to get that thing on time. Submarines, pick your item, all of those things. But that modernization isn't considered wasted spending by the states. You know, repaving highways and freeways is extremely important to taxpayers. So too with the armed forces, but that's not how it's treated. Um, and then you take the cost of people and then you, you shift them to another part of the ledger. Then not only do you have greater sunshine on what is or isn't providing direct combat capability, but then you can talk about the imbalance between re- spending on retirees versus combat medicine. If we had to do a mass evacuation, uh, medevac from like the Korean peninsula right now, we can't. And American parents are going to, scream bloody murder in Washington that why didn't you have enough medevac? Well, I can tell you why. Because we have an imbalance in how the dollars are spent the, with the overwhelming bias towards retirees. I don't have a problem paying retirees, people who serve, you know, they deserve a certain level of, you know, this contract with America. I have a problem with where the dollars come from and the lack of transparency about how much we're spending on them. That's where I have a problem. Talk to us about Ukraine, because we're hearing from critics on both the left and the right uh, the mostly on the right, that Ukraine is depleting our combat readiness for Taiwan, that Ukraine is uh, depleting our stockpiles of weapons. And we've we, on this podcast, we had Seth Jones on making the opposite case, which is that actually Ukraine is, re, is creating demand that is actually ginning up our defense industrial base that had been completely atrophied at the, since the end of the Cold War. And it's actually going to make us more prepared uh, for a conflict down the line because we're actually building stuff again instead of just sitting fallow. Talk to us about Ukraine and how it's affecting our readiness. Sure. Yeah, Seth and I recently toured a factory where we build certain types of warheads for the military. Uh, it was quite... I've, I've seen a lot of factory floors in my lifetime for the military, but never a warhead one. It was really uh, astounding. In what way? What it's, was astounding? Um, to, to just stand in a room with live warheads, it's just, it's a very humbling experience, but you know, I'm glad that we have it. But also, Mark, it was kind of quieter than the Starbucks, which makes me a little concerned, uh, you know, because we're not, <laughs> we're, we're ramping up, but we're not cranking at, you know, full capacity across the board. Not Rosie the Riveter, right? right? During World Absolutely. War II, where the assembly lines are just moving and weapons are churning out, right? Not happening? Right. I see, so Seth's got a point, and of course I, I agree. I see pockets of ramping up sort of uh, to to rebuild the manufacturing uh, workforce, the technical workforce um, that helps, you know, create the arsenal of democracy on a daily basis. I see attention to issues like how we still hand roll some, you know, certain types of munitions and, you know, how could you do that better and faster? You know, there. Sunshine is, is coming on a lot of problems that are, can be addressed now to help in the, if it were needed in a few years. But like I said, it's only in pockets. So, you know, so for example, I see the army, you know, their acquisition chief, he says basically like, we're an army at war to resupply Ukraine, but also just to get well as an army. And that's great. I, there's no other service that's talking like that. In the Navy and the, the Air Force, there, nobody's at war. Because obviously, I understand this is an intensive ground force, you know, campaign primarily in Ukraine. But nothing is limited to one domain. It's it is it's it's space, it's sea, it's air, it's everything, it's cyber, and so you know you go over the Pentagon. It depends on who you talk to. There are examples of uh, good news uh, of rebuilding 
and trying to let ha um, incorporate lessons learned from Ukraine in terms of manufa military manufacturing mark. But it's really uh, a bunch of one-off cases. It, this is not sort of a universal approach inside the building, inside the Pentagon. Okay, so let me ask you a question that I keep hearing from people, even, I have to confess, from the Taiwanese who have become embarrassed by this. Is our support for Ukraine lessening our capabilities to defend ourselves? Is our support for Ukraine lessening our ability to face up to the challenges that we are going to see from China in Taiwan, face up to the challenges to the homeland, is it going to hurt us? <laughs> right. The short answer is no. The nuanced answer is we're taking some risk and some capabilities, but we're also fixing the problems and the replenishment of those stocks. We're finding ways to go better, faster, and cheaper. You know, bring in new materials, for example, add new machinery and tooling. Uh, so lines that when they crank five years from now for a different reason, uh, they have advanced manufacturing incorporated. So it's kind of like a mixed bag, but for the most part, the answer is no. What we are sharing with Ukraine, it's not, it's not that we wouldn't use it. It's that we have enough of a buffer to be comfortable with doing so. And we have enough allies and partners contributing to that replenishment of our own stockpiles and Ukraine's. I actually would take this gamble over not doing anything because then we don't know, then we wouldn't have known the problems to fix ahead of time. You know, if Taiwan, if we had needed to respond to Taiwan quickly, we wouldn't have been able to do so absent the lessons learned from Ukraine. Exit question uh, for me. The the aid to Ukraine that we are that we are providing is actually not going to Ukraine, right? It's going it's going to Americans. It's going to re we're, we're sending them stuff out of our existing stockpiles and then ginning up our defense industrial base and producing more stuff in Texas and Missouri and Ohio and other places like that. Is that is that accurate? And is that strengthening our military capabilities? You are correct. So foreign military sales of equipment, right, is basically, uh, it can be a couple of things, but you're just taking either things that we have put in mothball status and you're retrofitting them for, you know, taking out certain technologies and then you're giving them to allies like Ukraine and, or you're just going to the tank plant and you're ordering an allied capable version of a new tank as it, or it's, or it's both. Uh, and so basically, right. The, this is dollars that get basically funneled right back into the U S economy, right into the companies and workforces and plants that we need to ramp up, to become well again after not spending for basically 10 years. Um, great job, Mark. You don't need my help on that answer. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so exit question from me. What's happened to the Republican Party? <laughs> this is an easy one. <laughs> Look, you know, Mackenzie, one of the reasons why I'm a Republican is not social policy. It's not because of prayer in schools. It's not because of the things that you and Mark are interested in as conservatives. What interests me is America's role in the world, America's, you know, standing athwart history and yelling stop to dictators, to communists. It's standing up for democracy. It's believing in a strong military. It's looking to our men and women in uniform and having nothing but the greatest respect for them. It's wanting to salute the flag. The Republican Party has always been more trusted on national security, more trusted on keeping America safe. Democrats, after 9-11, said they were thankful that George Bush and uh, was president, not Al Gore, because he was going to do what it took to keep America safe. I don't even recognize this party anymore. And I know that's sort of out of our scope, but you're, you're one of us. If you, had to, if you had to just muse for a second... What's going on? Well, like I said, let's go back just three years ago. The Republican Party led the defense budget increases above Joe Biden and all of Congress went along. When I whipped the votes, the majority of Congress still wants a strong defense. That's where the votes are. It's not reflected right now with the crazy caucus, but, but that is what they did and saw. Now, 
I don't look upon history with like, I don't wax poetic about uh, Americans and history. Generally speaking, Republicans and Democrats have always been reluctant uh, to use a force for the use of force. They want to pull up the drawbridges and just be left alone. I get that. But when they're, and, and lastly, the further you are from a really bad event sort of touching your own life, your own community, your own home, the easier it is to to just lapse into complacency that this is how it always is, that safety is just sort of a birthright. Um, and so I think all of those are at play. Leadership really is the defined, and I, I know it, it's the easy answer, the easy button, the way out, but there's no substitute for the bully pulpit. Mark knows this better than anybody. There's no substitute for a leader that's constantly reminding people why we're doing what we're doing. For the most part, and when it comes to foreign and defense policy, Americans aren't going to really vote on the issue per se, unless they feel, again, it's like right at their doorstep. But they will they will be brought along if someone just explains it to them. And right now, that's the, there is no leadership. And, and there hasn't been, uh, I'd argue, for a while now when it comes to foreign policy. Americans are not allergic to supporting investment in these in safety, they just need to be reminded why it's important. Amen. Thank you, Mackenzie. That was awesome. Grateful for your work, and Absolutely we're grateful excellent. to have you on the show. Oh, thanks. I, I it's my pleasure to do it. So, Danny, what did you think? I thought it was a really important and fascinating discussion. But I do want to do one bit of housekeeping for our listeners. Uh, we are going to start releasing our podcasts on Thursday mornings, not on Wednesday mornings, simply to provide us more breadth in order to be able to get timely guests so that we can release things to you without the interval of the weekend. And uh, I hope that will be uh, acceptable. Don't hesitate to write Mark hate mail about it <laughs> if you need to. Just like they're delaying your defense budget, we're delaying your podcast by a day. There, there you go. There you go. In the so, name of efficiency. <laughs> maybe. Um, maybe. Mark, uh, I thought I thought we talked a lot about Ukraine, but I'm still just gobsmacked by what Congress did in this shutdown debate. The fact that you that they you could buy off a forty five day continuing resolution for our national budget. And by cutting money for Ukraine seems to me to be freaking insane. Yeah, I agree with you. But look, I mean, I think they were kicking the can down the road to try and negotiate this and get this through. And uh, I don't blame Mitch McConnell or, or McCarthy for uh, for this right now. I think they're trying to get Ukraine funding in, and that's good. But here, what I want to address, we can, we're can we going to talk about uh, the whole Ukraine dynamics with Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, who's going to be joining us at the next episode. Uh, so we'll get deeply into that. But I, I just want to take on this whole issue of how that Ukraine is somehow hurting our readiness, somehow hurting our ability to be prepared for China. It's just total bullshit. Uh, it is. If you took anything from this podcast, it's that our defense industrial base is in such bad shape uh, because we haven't been investing in defense. We haven't been buying enough weapons. We've been taking a peace dividend during the post-Cold War era that has completely depleted our ability to produce weapons here at home. And guess what? The Ukraine war, which is horrible for the Ukrainians, they didn't ask for it. The Russians invaded. They're not asking to die. They're not asking to fight. They're doing what they have to do to defend their country. But it is a benefit to the United States supporting them because it is re- energizing our defense industrial base. We are sending them weapons from our stockpiles, and then we are buying new weapons to refill those stockpiles, which means that we are going to be able to have assembly lines, uh, production lines that are warm. We're going to have people who are employed, who have the expertise to make these very advanced weapons and these very difficult capabilities. We're going to be building more factories. We're going to be building more weapons. And that means that we are going to be able to deter China better because we have warm assembly lines that are actually working instead of atrophied ones that have fallen on, on hard times. And oh, by the way, that's creating jobs in America. That is creating jobs in congressional districts across this country because we have we're building weapons. And oh, by the way, our allies are sending their old weapons to Ukraine and they're coming to us and buy new ones. They're sending over their their old Soviet MiGs and even now their F-16s and they're buying F-35s that are made in Texas. And that is creating jobs for American workers. So this idea that somehow the war in Ukraine in which not a single American is dying 
is somehow harming the national security of the United States is a myth and a lie. Don't believe what these people are telling you. No, that's right. It is a lie and it's a pernicious lie. And they know better. If we are in such bad shape that we can't pay and help and support others who are fighting a war that we would otherwise have to fight, then we are truly giving up the ghost as the country that we have been for well over 200 years. That's the message. And the only slam that I really have, and we've mentioned it already twice in this podcast, is where the hell is Joe Biden? That lame ass, damn, you are our commander in chief. Haul your ass into a room, stand at a podium and give a fucking speech. If you're too old, send out your national security advisor. If you're too pathetic, send out your secretary of defense. The fact that they have remained silent is the single greatest reason why support for this is slipping. People say they don't have a strategy. People say they don't have purpose behind it. People say they're not committed. Democrats are already telling me that if this war continues to drag on, Joe Biden's support is very much in question. This is a scandal. Shame on Joe Biden. Absolutely. And we're going to talk about this next week. But the other thing is, it's not just a speech. They don't have a strategy for victory. They have a strategy to help Ukraine not lose. And nobody, Americans don't like that. They don't like frozen conflicts. They don't like stagnation. They want a strategy to victory and they'll rally to it if you have one. They don't have one. And second of all, the the, the number one thing that is hurting the, the uh, effort in Ukraine is our border crisis. A lot of Americans are reluctant internationalists. They're not, they're not isolationists. But what they hear from the inter- isolationists is Joe Biden cares more about Ukraine's border than our border. And guess what? It's true. It is true he does, because you can look at the crisis on the border and see that he doesn't give a crap about the fact that we're being invaded uh, in this country by cartels and, and traffickers and fentanyl and all the rest of it. He's not doing a damn thing to do it. And that is hurting Ukraine because it is giving rhetorical weapon to the people who don't want to do the right thing there. And you know what? We're a superpower. We can secure our border and we can help Ukraine defend its border. And these shouldn't be, these are not, this is not a binary choice. But if we're not securing our border, then a lot of Americans are not going to support helping Ukraine secure its border. And so, you know, get your act together on the border as well. We're going to talk about that with Brian Fitzpatrick next week. Yeah, that's a good conversation. I'm really looking forward to it. So guys, this week, have a nice Wednesday. Next week, we'll see you on Thursday. Thanks, as always, to all of you. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.